The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? I should mention I'm getting a lot more bullish right now. The start of this year, the tone of the gold share markets is improving very dramatically, and uh, I think we could be looking at a much better year in 2014 for the gold shares, if not the gold bullion as well. We want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies, Brazil Resources, and Metanor Resources. And we will be talking to the scientists behind the technology at Nanostruck Technologies in a few minutes. Next week, I will be talking to Ron Perry of Metanor Resources. These are two penny stocks that I think both have a chance to do extremely well this year. Metanor getting into production right now, doing very well at its Bachelor Lake mine in Quebec. Brazil Resources, likewise, a very bright future ahead of it. We'll be talking to Amir Adnani sometime in the near future as well. We'd like to suggest that you keep your questions and comments coming to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. Actually, in the second hour of today's show, which you will need to go to jtaylormedia.com to listen to, click on the podcast button there to hear the second half of today's show. I uh, expect to be answering some questions that you send along to me over the last few weeks. And also, I do hope to uh, talk about some of my favorite stocks during the second half of the second hour. Now, I'm going to also be talking the first half of the second hour to John Rubino. He's a proprietor of DollarCollapse.com. I've titled today's show, Keynes Destroyed the West But Not Gold. And we're going to have Professor John Cochran and Dr. Lee Wilson visit for the first time. John Rubino, as I just noted, will return uh, to be with us. He'll be with us the second hour at jtaylormedia.com, immediately following this first hour at Voice America Business Channel. Professor Cochran will explain how Keynes' anti-free market interest rates are 
destroying life-sustaining uh, capitalism. And really, to enable Keynesian interest rate policies and deficit spending, the free market for gold had to be destroyed so it would not constrict money printing and deficit spending uh, stimulation that Keynes advocated. So serving to keep the masses disinterested in gold, bullion banks have manipulated the gold price downward with longer-term disastrous results. But the current gold bear market will not last forever, according to John Rubino. He'll explain why uh, in the second hour of today's show at uh, jtaylormedia.com. Also, in the second hour, I'm going to be uh, talking to you about some of my favorite gold mining stocks. And now that it is looking increasingly likely that gold mining sector may actually be turning around and heading back up into the bull market, I think uh, times are getting very exciting. I look forward to telling you about some of my favorite picks in the second hour. And a very positive note, uh, in just a minute or two, I will be talking to uh, the main scientist behind the very promising technology, Nanostruck Technologies, is using to clean water and do it in an environmentally friendly way. It's just an incredible story of cleaning up waste dumps and recycling that water for irrigation and other purposes in uh, in Mexico. So that will be Dr. Lee Wilson. He'll be joining me in just a few minutes after a commercial break. And I should mention that Nanostruck uh, Technologies is selling at around 10 cents a share. Uh, if it's able to do what it seems able to do and what it seems to have done in Mexico, then I think this is going to be a really big winner for us uh, going forward. But we do have to go to break now, but when we come back, I will be with uh, Dr. Lee Wilson, uh, and then after that, Professor Cochran to talk about Keynesian economics. Second hour, then John Rabino will be with us to talk about why this gold manipulation is not going to last much longer and why the gold share prices are probably heading much, much higher. We'll be right back with Dr. Lee Wilson. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated, trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV, is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000-ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. 
You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Dr. Lee Wilson. He's a member of the advisory board of Nanostruct Technologies, and Nanostruct Technologies is a sponsor to this show. Dr. Wilson completed a Ph.D. in physical chemistry from the University of Saskatchewan in 1998 and was an NSE. RC, that's a Natural Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada, visiting fellow at the National Research Council of Canada at the Stacey Institute for Molecular Sciences. Currently, Dr. Wilson is an Associate Professor of Chemistry at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Wilson has led the development of a nanokytosin copolymer powder, that's a derivative of crustacean shells, that's being used exclusively by Nanostruct Technologies for its water remediation technology. Uh, Dr. Wilson specializes in a physical chemistry and materials science, uh, and his uh, current area of research aims at the development of new types of materials, such as molecular sponges, uh, that will have a significant impact uh, on areas such as uh, the environment, biotechnology, medicine, chemical delivery, separation systems, and membrane materials for water purification. And uh, it is for this kind of knowledge and expertise that uh, Dr. Wilson has been requested uh, and has joined the advisory board of Nanostruct Technologies. So uh, welcome, Dr. Wilson. It's really good to have you with me today. Good morning, Jane. It's great to be here. You know, it, it is a very interesting story. Water is certainly one of the most, next to oxygen, I suppose, the most necessary commodity on the planet. And uh, as I understand it, that's one of the main things that Nanostruct Technologies is seeking to do, is to pure, is water purification. You know, I'm, I'm just wondering if you can maybe help us a little bit to understand the technology behind the, um, the work that Nanostruct Technologies is looking to do. Keeping in mind that, you know, our audience is probably mostly not comprised of scientists to maybe help us understand a couple of definitions. First of all, what is a polymer? A polymer is uh, it's really just a very large molecule. Um, and there's, there's many natural kinds of polymers that we may or may not be aware of, like a lot of our clothing. Mm-hmm. Cotton fibers, for example, are, are a polymer. Uh-huh. Um, the, the hair on our head is um, a protein polymer. Um, there's many kinds of polymers, but basically what a polymer is, it's, um, it's basically a repeating unit of a, a, a much smaller subunit, which basically is at the end of it all, it's just a very, very large molecule. So a lot of foods we eat, a lot of products that we use are actually polymers, and we may not know it. Plastics is a good example of mm-hmm. major component is polymers. All right, so uh, the, uh, on the website, Nanostruct uh, Technologies describes itself as a, as a Canadian company that has a suite of technologies that remove molecular-sized particles using patented absorptive, absorptive uh, organic polymers. So you're, the company's really looking at using organic substances, organic polymers, as opposed to non-organic. That's correct, yeah. And I guess I should say um, maybe a non-synthetic might uh-huh. be a- be a better word. Um, uh, petroleum-based products, by and mm-hmm. large, have been sort of the stronghold, I think, in in, in many um, commodity chemicals. Mm-hmm. What we've been turning to, at least in terms of my interests, is looking at um, what kinds of materials can we derive from nature. And I guess that's where um, the story begins, I suppose, with um, this particular polymer that we get from a crustacean shell. The polymers that are being used by nanostruct 
they are organic, and so is that the, is that where they're sourced from crustacean shells? That's the primary source. Uh, and I mean, when it comes to gathering those shells up uh, commercially, is there an issue with respect to permitting? I mean, can you just go any anywhere with a with a shovel and start pulling those out of the out of the sands in the sea, or, or how does that work? Well, often they this would be sort of done in conjunction with a, a food processing facility. Okay. So, uh, these are often a waste byproduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that would probably be the, the ready source so that mm-hmm. you have some control over it. I don't think people would be just collecting them from the ocean, but probably okay. from some kind of a fishery industry. Uh-huh. You are involved with a whole lot of things as a research scientist. I mean, there's a lot of different targets and a lot of different possibilities here using this sort of green technology. What... Is is it water primarily that is being addressed? Water problems being addressed by Nanostruck at the present time? Yeah, I think that that uh, a lot of issues pertaining directly to and surrounding water, whether it's um, taking out con- waterborne contaminants from mm-hmm. water or um, selectively removing valuable components from water, um, could be looked at as a second second approach. So you might be removing unwanted materials from water or desirable materials from water in a selective way. Possibly could you explain to our listeners how it works? How does a polymer pull out the, the sub- unwanted substance or the wanted substances from water? That's probably a little complicated, but I think in, in, in the shortest possible way, I would say that um, you can think a lot about these polymers, particularly once we've modified them, because we can do some very subtle manipulations on the structure, and that's, that's often where the key is. But if we neglect that, what the polymer does basically is not unlike what you would see in a, a typical sponge mm-hmm. used in a, in a bathtub. So the sponge would soak up the, the materials of interest and remove them from the water phase. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that actually becomes quite interesting because then you have a way of um, purifying water or, um, in, in the second case, perhaps removing something of value in that water in my home, we have a, a water filter that pulls out certain things. It doesn't just, uh, I mean, it pulls out certain chemicals from the water. Uh, would that, that be using a polymer? Yeah, those, those are typically like some kind of an activated carbon filter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have um, reasonable um, efficiency for removing certain kinds of materials. But that's an old technology that's been known for a long time. Yes. Um, but it, may, it, it actually does suffer from some significant limitations. And we've studied uh, activated carbon quite a lot. Mm-hmm. What we found is that um, the properties of these polymers that actually come from the crustacean shells are really fascinating. And, and um, uh, I, I would have to say that activated carbon simply cannot compare. It's, it's really just a step beyond. As I look at the list of things that uh, your technology may be able to address, it's very, very impressive. I mean, I just wonder how far away we are from the commercialization of a lot of these things. Acids, um, clean out acids, hydrocarbons, pathogens, oils, toxins in water. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it's a very impressive list. But I understand that Nanostruck is also looking at cleaning up waste dumps, I think, from... Uh, perhaps pulling out some metals from some of the tailings ponds, in, in primarily in South Africa. Is that right? That's correct. Um, like this, there's a number of other locations as well, but certainly South Africa is of interest. So would they be involved in cleaning up these, uh, providing a, a, an environmental service at the same time pulling out valuable metals that could be uh, profitable for Nanostruck? Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that um, that's, that's definitely um, uh, a key interest. And... Uh, in the long run, I think we'd like to be able to develop a, um, 
materials that can address all kinds of water remediation problems. I mean, I guess it, it really comes down to you are the scientists in the lab, and one of the questions I always have for these kinds of companies is, can it be scaled up? And what is the answer to that question in general? Can this technology be scaled up to, to, to meet the real world's needs as opposed to just making a showing that it works in a lab? I think it can, and um, part of the idea behind this is um, the platform material, which, as I mentioned earlier, is derived from crab shells. At the present time, by and large, this material is a waste uh, byproduct, which, mm-hmm. is, which is not used. Um, and there may be pretty substantial supply of it, which is just simply not being used each year. It could be you know, directed towards other uh, applications, such as what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it can be scaled up just because of the, you know, the, 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 the availability and supply of this material. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that... Uh, it can um, replace and supplant a lot of um, petroleum-based products that are out there. And it offers a lot of advantages simply because it's um, a green-based material. And I think people appreciate that more and more these days. Mm -hmm. A lot of environmental advantages uh, or cost advantages as well, potentially? Absolutely, yeah. Uh Um, And it's just uh, also what's what's particular for this um, crab shell-based material, it's it's um, relatively non-toxic, mm-hmm. so it's actually been used in test studies in drug delivery um, in various kinds of uh, biomedical devices. And so, mm-hmm. from a, from a toxicity point of view, um, that's re- relatively well understood. Uh, and that's actually not the case with a lot of uh, synthetic material. Uh, it's my understanding that the company has had some success in Mexico. Could you talk about that? Yeah, um, there was a particular uh, wastewater uh, site, which was part of a, a solid waste dump. Um, and some of the runoff mm-hmm. uh, from this particular dump was containing quite a lot of waterborne contaminants. Uh, metals and organic materials and so on. And um, using uh, one of the devices that has been developed at Nanostruck, uh, which incorporated synthetic materials that I've been speaking about, uh, they've been able to uh, take that water and um, I guess the um, environmental standards of that particular region Mm -hmm. that it could be used for agricultural irrigation. Mm-hmm. Which is a huge, um, it's 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 a huge uh, success story because that was a problem that many people tried working on and failed. But th- and this I would consider as a fairly severe wastewater treatment problem. And so, um, yeah, that was that was a big success. And that is a success that we haven't heard a whole lot about yet. It's uh, it's something I hope the company will will start talking about. Um, I don't know. I think they were probably it was more of a demonstration project than than one intended uh, necessarily to make a lot of money to start with. But at least that's my understanding. I, I think I think you're correct. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, water. It seems to me. I mean, people recognize that water is a huge water shortages and, and potable water is a huge problem. Um, facing the world and uh, you know anything that can be done on on any kind of scale here I think would just be an absolutely huge story and it would seem to me that somebody who's in the position to make that happen uh, should be rewarded very handsomely uh, I would expect I mean there's rewards there's financial rewards is also I guess rewards that I'm sure you as a young scientist would take just merely by being uh, helping 
to make the world you live in a better place to live in. But it, it would just seem to me that there would be um, tremendous upside potential for a company, uh, a company that could make this happen. Um, do you have any sense of all? I mean, is this is this? You know, I've been investing in Vancouver companies for a long time, uh, Canadian startup companies, and most of them, you know, most of them. Maybe they have a little success here and there, but they fade out, uh, fade, uh, you know, they just fade out of the picture at some point in time. I mean, I'm hoping this is a success. I've invested some of my own money in it. Uh, it's been a sponsor of this show. I've been waiting to get somebody on the show to talk about it, and now I think it's finally happening. I want to really, really thankful that you could come on and at least introduce the story and help people understand a little bit about it. I'm going to be talking to the management of the company in, in, the, in the near future about uh, you know the economics and the business prospects and all of that, but I would 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 guess that if what you're using are these these castaway shells, that the cost of the materials themselves, I mean, you'd have to gather it up and source it from someplace. But uh, any sense at all of the the cost for making this sort of thing happen? I guess that's not a fair question because it would all depend on the size of your operation and, and you know a lot of different variables that you as a scientist uh, working out of the lab primarily would not be that cognizant of it, but it seems to me that there should be a pretty good margin. There could be a pretty good margin. I guess it all depends on what you get at the top end, too. So, But any comments on uh, on the economics of this? Yeah, I think the economics are, are definitely uh, feasible, um, and, it, and, it's, and it would really vary depending on application to application. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, notwithstanding what you said about the importance of water, um, I think uh, what you know we have to realize as a society, especially in North America, I don't think we've really actually put a very high value on on, on water no. because we've had uh, we have too much of it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so the cost that we uh, the value that we put on water, I think, is not anywhere near what you might see in a country like Mexico sure. or Saudi Arabia and so mm-hmm. on. Sure, and um, I China. Think when we, Exactly, yeah. I mean, even the water table in, in Beijing is falling by more than a meter each year. Um, and in Mexico City, it's beyond a meter a year. And so these these, these cities are going to have a, a tremendous problem to deal with in less than 10 years. Mm. So um, the problems they have are not what we're experiencing. So if we can, you know, match, um, you know, our ideals mm-hmm. to, you know, what, what water really uh, the, the value that water really has, I think um, you're going to see a, a, a real game changer, I think, in terms of all kinds of water technology. But I don't feel that that's really necessary for what we're dealing with because I, I think the science behind this is quite sound and mm-hmm. it definitely has tremendous uh, business potentiality. Yeah, it, it really is promising, and uh, well, I, I really look forward to following this company and, and possibly, uh, you know, talking with you sometime in the future. I do want to talk to the business people and get a sense of where they're going right now with the company's business plan because uh, the technology is clearly very promising, and um, you know, not only on water but also in uh, recovering some metals and cleaning up the environment. I mean, it's just sort of a sort of a dream company if it works. I mean, this is a, this is a rags to riches story if it really if they can uh, if they can really make the business model work so it's uh, uh the dreams come out of the lab uh, people like yourself the creative scientists that come through with things that help to to make our world better and then the next step of course is applying that to making it happen in the real world so but i want to really thank you very much for coming on to talk to us uh today it's been a real pleasure lee talking with you and well thank you very much jan thanks for your interest folks don't go away we'll be right back uh, after the break with our next guest
the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Professor John Cochran. Dr. Cochran is currently Professor of Economics and Dean of the School of Business at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Previously, he was Chair and Professor of Economics at Metropolitan State College of Denver, where he taught economics from 1981. He has been a visiting professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and is a senior scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Uh, That is for sure. You and I, uh, those of us who listen to this show know that it's the leading research and educational center for classical liberalism and Austrian school uh, economics. Dr. Cochran received his PhD in economics from the University of Colorado Boulder in 1985. He co-authored uh, with Fred Glahey the Hayek Keynes Debate, Lessons for Current Business Cycle Research, and he has published numerous scholarly articles uh, on the refinement and development of the Mises-Hayek Austrian theory of the business cycle. In addition to his scholarly publications, Dr. Cochran frequently provides commentary on the economy in the Mises Daily uh, and blog post at the Bastiat Circle. And indeed, that's how I learned of uh, Professor Cochran. I uh, should have known about him before, no doubt, if I had been as diligent a uh, student of Austrian economics as I should be, I probably would have been well aware of his work before this. Uh, but welcome, Professor. It's uh, really good to have you with us. Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it is really great to have you. I mean, I'm reading some of your material here, and uh, it is the one that you wrote really about the uh, Keynesian economics, um, the folly of Keynesian economics that we want to talk to you about. But before we get to that, with regard to the Hayek-Keynes debate, 
lessons for the current business cycle research. I guess it's probably available at Mises.org. People can order the book there. Uh, they had some copies that can probably be found on um, Amazon. That they had some. It, it's one of those books that got lost in kind of the copyright. It's it's available. It, I mean, if people that want to it, get it badly enough can find it. it uh, it's yeah. available. Yeah, but uh, but I I kind of think the Mises store ran out of the the paperback edition that they had. Okay, so well well maybe um, maybe you could just give our listeners just a brief overview then of of what that book uh, covers. If uh, I guess this is basically in part what we're going to talk about today, an exercise in Keynesian folly. But well, the the book covers really what was a debate between Hayek and Keynes in the 1930s on really the overall nature of how an economy operates and works and Mm -hmm. what the government can actually do for good or ill. Mm -hmm. And Hayek's view was that most of what the government could do, especially through central banking, was create long-term harm to the economy by generating boom-bust business cycles. Keynesian perspective was that essentially a market, if left alone, would tend to get stuck in a kind of a permanent semi-slump with with significant high levels of unemployment and without government intervention with both fiscal and monetary policy, with an emphasis on fiscal policy, mm-hmm. the economy would, would stay in a kind of a permanent semi-slump other than brief periods where animal, animal spirits, spirits yeah. would become exuberant and lead to <laughs> a boom. So, yeah. Uh, really, really different perspectives, and in my view, that was Hayek's contributions had been ignored mm-hmm. for years, and I think primarily because their policy prescriptions mm-hmm. moved in directions that argue kind of like Pierre Lemieux that you don't need somebody in charge of the mm-hmm. economy, and that somebody in charge is much, much more likely to cause ill effects, and I think these two recent boom busts, both the dot-com bust and the more recent housing bubble bust, are great examples of the Hayekian emphasis that central bankers and the, US and the government are causes of the business cycle, not the ones that are going to cure the ills from the yeah. business cycle. Well, for sure. I mean, we Austrians believe that and know that to be true. Uh, but looking back at it, uh, the 1930s, for example, why, um, I guess my question, this is a devil's advocate question for you, if um, you know, free market economics uh, works so well, why did we have the Great Depression? Uh, why did Keynes have uh, an excuse to argue a, a different policy mix? Or did we not have a free market economy before uh, 1930? We had probably less of a free market economy than what people are led to believe, uh-huh. uh, particularly coming out of World War II. And, and England particularly never really returned to free market after the First World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the best book on what went wrong in the 1920s and what turned the recession of 1929 into a Great Depression, whether is Murray Rothbard's book, The Great Depression, mm-hmm. where he clearly lays out the uh, overexpansion of the money supply and credit during the 1920s that led to the artificial boom and then the significant policy errors that were made by Hoover, who was an extreme interventionist, right. and, and not in the book, but followed up later 
and there's been a lot of new research by others that are now starting to support this that the Great Depression lasted was as severe and lasted as long as it was because of significant interventionist policies, including Keynesian type mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So lots and lots of new work coming out on that. Well, John, you know, I think it seems to me that one of the problems that we have here is that people just simply don't understand basic free market economics, and they don't understand how free markets allocate scarce resources as efficiently as humanly possible within the four dimensions of time and space. And uh, and so people and so politicians come along and promise people that they can give them something that is physically impossible to give them. Uh, and and when free markets can't deliver everything, you know, let's say heaven on earth, then people look to politicians for that solution. And so you have the 1930s. And, you know, what really seems, uh, use the word folly, when uh, the animal spirits idea, doesn't matter if you don't have, it doesn't matter if you have a balance sheet that's broke. It doesn't matter if you can't put food on your table. All you have to do is just have animal spirits. It's almost like a religious faith, almost, that, that's grounded on nothing. So I'm wondering if, if our if what needs to happen is people have to really understand the the principles of free market economics, because Lord knows they're not it's not taught in our in our schools for sure. Yeah, and it's it's definitely not taught as clearly as it should be in our universities. Mm-hmm. That most textbooks still continue to introduce macroeconomic in a Keynesian framework, and you see that even in the policies that people that supposedly support free markets so quickly mm-hmm. both uh, in return to pushing Keynesian-driven consumption-based spending and tax programs to cure recessions, and that comes from both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. For and sure. they postpone necessary and, and almost a religious faith that we need a central bank to mm-hmm. control the money supply and stabilize financial markets. Mm-hmm. And there's actually some good work starting to come out, particularly from Larry White and George Selgin, looking at the 100-year history of the Fed mm-hmm. and making a pretty convincing argument that uh, even compared to the imperfect pre-Fed monetary system, the Fed has actually performed worse Mm -hmm. than what it was intended to correct and definitely hate to make comparisons to ideals but definitely perform less well than a a monetary system without a central bank but strict enforcements of bankruptcy laws would perform yeah indeed well you know i'm going back to 2008 2009 my banking friends here in new york say uh that uh, the fed had no choice it had to do what it did or we would have had a cataclysmic uh implosion a deflation that would have made the 1930s look like child's play and yet of course uh david stockman who we've had on this show doesn't agree with that i'm quite convinced you don't agree with it. I know Congressman Paul doesn't agree with it. I think most Austrians don't agree with it. What would have happened? Let's, let's say what would have happened if um, if they hadn't pumped in trillions of dollars and done all kinds of other things uh, in 2008-2009? My expectation and, and there's an article in the QJE recently by Joe Salerno mm-hmm. that I think makes a pretty good argument that we would have had a very, very sharp, steep recession, but that would have been followed very, very quickly by a very, very rapid and strong recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some Austrians, and I'll 
theme a little bit that following Hayek in the 1970s argues that a central bank, if we have a central bank and we're operating, we hit a crisis, that the central bank should stop the inflation, but should also prevent a massive decline in the money spending stream. But even if you buy that, what the central bank, the Fed did following the 2007-2008 crisis exceeded that by a massive, massive amount. And I think even a mainstreamer, John Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, argues that this has been an overreaction and some of the slow recovery has been because of the uncertainty of these current quantitative easing and other types of policies. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, that's, that's counterfactual. They're very, very hard to do. And and you have to go back almost to the 1920-21 recession to see an operation of a market economy following a crisis that fits mm-hmm. more that free market mill than that right. significant deflation, but that deflation allowed for liquidation of the bad assets, and the economy recovered very, very quickly mm-hmm. with that. Well- so, so it was, you know, it was uh, Richard Nixon who said we're all Keynesians now, along about 1971 or so. Uh, and it was then that since then, and maybe arguably before then, uh, we have not allowed the, the market to work its way out. So it seems to me what we've had is one bubble after another, and all of the bubbles have been getting bigger. Uh, I suppose because we've never allowed uh, equilibrium, uh, the markets to truly adjust. Uh, this is being done by by uh, deficit spending. Certainly, as you pointed out, Keynes both fiscal and monetary, but primarily fiscal. But now it seems to be we're working more on the monetary stimulus side because I guess fiscal. My goodness, we're already running. Well, we're doing both. I mean, we're deficit spending beyond belief, and yet it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be doing that much. If you, I, I'm looking at something I call my inflation deflation watch, some numbers I've put together and have tracked since 2005, and what I see is more and more money getting less and less results in terms of driving prices higher. Yeah, the stock market's at new highs, and we're seeing, um, but commodity prices and, and lots of other uh, throughout the, the economy itself is not reviving. How do you see the U.S. economy now? Is it, uh, it, it, you know, the government gives us numbers that suggest it's gotten somewhat better, albeit not very much better. I mean, even the mainstream people are complaining that it isn't as good as it should be. But how do you, how do you see our economy now? Main Street, not Wall Street. Wall Street seems to be partying on, playing their games, uh, getting rich and richer, a lot of them, most of them. But average people that I see back in Ohio, where I'm from, they're suffering a lot. What's your read of the economy? Uh, how 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 good is it, or how bad is it? Uh, it's uh, probably the best picture of it, and what's likely to continue is what some people have called a eurosclerosis or huh. a Japanese-style stagnation. That that and that markets are kind of like weeds; they pop up everywhere, and they work even when they're really, really restricted. Uh, but I think your perception is pretty clear with some of what the Fed's done with its, what John Taylor called a mondestrial policy, where mm-hmm. they've gotten into credit allocation and picking winners and losers. Mm-hmm. But you see through some of this that you've allowed the banks to sort of recapitalize and seem to be doing very, very well. Mm. But uh, 
due to what I would primarily attribute to Robert Higgs' regime uncertainty with all these attacks from the rhetoric Mm -hmm. on businesses and then add in all of the new regulation and restriction, Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, the attempts to pack the National Labor Relations Board, the attack on uh, Boeing where they tried to prevent him from moving some of their production to South Carolina mm-hmm. through the national way. All of these things are anti-market, cause people who are trying to make long-term plans to actually question whether their property rights are restricted. So there's a real hesitancy to do any major innovation or investment that is restricting, and as Higgs has pointed out, and I've tried to make an argument in some of my writings on Mises, that for the economy to recover, we have to get a recovery in private investment. Mm-hmm. And for private investment to recover, it's nice to have low interest rates, it's nice to have credit available, but when you're also still hammering banks on risk and other types of mm-hmm. things that are causing them to tighten credit in other ways, and then you're paying them interest on reserves so they can Mm. get a huge inflow of funds by just leaving these reserves. Mm. Just sitting there. Just sitting there. uh, You're not going to get the recovery. And uh, I think there's an article I've done on Mises on regime uncertainty and malinvestment that Mm -hmm. provides some data, both mine and Higgs, that shows the strong correlation over the business cycle between uh, private investment and actually employment mm-hmm. and it's going to take and neither employment nor investment has actually recovered and uh, unfortunately too much of the rhetoric that emphasizes that consumers are 70% of the economy so you need to get consumer spending yeah. to drive investment is just exactly bass or ass backwards on yeah. what needs to take place to generate really good-paying jobs yeah. that are sustainable. Yeah, you need the supply side. You need, you need. America needs. Side. America needs to produce something again, as Peter, as, as Peter Schiff points out constantly. We uh, we've just become a, a Keynesian economy, a consumption economy. You know, so you mentioned that Keynes put the emphasis on fiscal policy, and we are, you know, I don't know what our deficit's going to be. It's going to be huge this year. I think it's over a trillion dollar budget. But um, it seems to me though that the monetary thing has to go along with it. So in 1971, when Nixon took a off the gold standard that allowed that's when i noticed that credit started to grow very dramatically soon after that it started a little before that and then the pressure against the u.s gold reserve from france and elsewhere and nixon slammed the gold window shut and then we had and then we started to have this you know i would say bubbles upon bubbles that were created because there was no but keynes called gold a barbaric relic did he badmouth gold because he he wanted to get it out of the way so that the monetary policy could accommodate the fiscal policy was that was that his motive do you think for calling i, I think that was definitely one of his motives that mm-hmm. was uh and if you look at some of his recommendations for what monetary policy should be doing, and kind of the one I talk about in his Keynesian folly of trying to keep interest rates low for extended periods of time, uh, that a gold standard money would put restrictions on the ability of a central bank to carry out that type of policy. And it also, because I think if you see now, John Taylor reports that 
the Fed's been buying about 77 to 78% of the newly issued government debt, which really means we can backhand and at least financing this through monetary expansion. Well, if you've got a gold base or gold, or I, I should put it a market-determined commodity money or yeah. something like competitive currencies like sure. we see on Bitcoin, that greatly hampers the ability of, of fiscal policy to run large deficits and finance them indirectly, at least through money creation. Mm-hmm. Well, if the Fed is, is really purchasing that much, I wasn't aware it was that high, 77 to 78%, who's buying the rest? Are the Chinese uh, still buying and nibbling away a little bit, or who's buying the rest? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'd have to look. Yeah. So I really couldn't but, I mean, the point is that... Argument, but, the, the, I, but a large amount of it has been going through the Fed, which really should give people pause that these deficits really are potentially harmful. Yeah. Or the harm, harmful effects will show up significantly mm-hmm. as the Fed starts to taper. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you, you, quantitative easing. Yeah, and the, and you hear the mainstream folks talk about the Fed's balance sheet and concerns about the Fed's balance sheet. It goes out there and purchases, well, I guess it's seventy five billion a month right now instead of eighty five of, of mortgage backed securities and and U.S. Treasuries. Uh, but at, at some point, um, I mean, interest rates. Let me ask you: Do you think we've seen we've seen the peak in the bond market in the Treasury market? Uh, the lows in interest rates. I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, you know, it, it's, uh, I, it, it, it's just one of those things that, that I think as critics, and I tend to agree with them, is that the difficult thing for the Fed is how do you unwind this without yeah. doing significant harm yeah. to asset markets yeah. and really more the, the, the real economy. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the fears of, hyperinflation are still there because right now most of what the Fed's done is just showed up in excess reserves, which is one reason we haven't seen at least measured mm-hmm. inflation. Yeah. We've seen a lot of asset bubbles and yeah. including collectibles and other things that are selling yeah. at oh, yeah. massive prices as yeah. people are trying to find ways to protect themselves from what could be a significant collapse in bond markets. And one of the things that has puzzled me, and maybe it's because insiders have are really tied to the Fed or they think they're smart enough to know when to get out, is, yeah. is why the bond markets haven't looked at this massive buildup and despite Fed buying, mm-hmm. private markets aren't mm-hmm. driving up mm-hmm. yields to protect themselves from potential future inflation. Yeah, well, some argue that the bond vigilantes might be starting to stir just a little bit, and that we might see uh, that that we might see a um, you know a rebellion against the Fed and its actions and its endless monetary creation uh, through the purchase of these assets. But it seems to me that there could be a, a sort of a if that we could be perched on the knife's edge at some point where they you know where the markets lose confidence because the Fed's balance sheet starts to you know, because people start being concerned about this, the Fed's balance sheet, and then all of a sudden, if interest rates start to rise because of this growing concern, then it becomes uh, even worse um, because uh, interest rates would rise and the Fed's balance sheet would deteriorate very dramatically. Could there be then 
something like that that could result in a real loss of confidence in the dollar and in the uh, you know in the fed that could set off a sort of uh, hyperinflationary view that sir john williams and some others seem to think could be uh, john is in fact on this show a couple of weeks ago just saying uh, it's it's a foregone conclusion it's going to happen and he thinks as early as 2014 others are suggesting we could go through a gut-wrenching deflationary depression before any of that happens i i, do, I just don't know what what's your sense of which way this thing could tip and do you think the bond vigilantes uh might be stirring out there i i'm starting to see some things and i think some of the bond vigilantes might be stirring unfortunately later because i think that was a real key factor in controlling some of the Fed actions during what many have called the Great Moderation from about 1980 to 2000. Um, but I, I tend to be less pessimistic than others because I think the real side of the economy that will perform better than, not good, but mm-hmm. better than the doomsdayers on either uh-huh. either the hyperinflation or the significant debt deflation, and I would probably find a debt deflation more beneficial than the hyperinflation yeah, absolutely. alternative yeah. on that, because at least you're starting to liquidate, and there will be a point with a debt deflation type of scenario that people will find it attractive to start buying assets and moving them into productive activity and mm-hmm. other ends where in the hyperinflation environment. Yeah. Well, well, not not to mention a, a moral issue that I always think of in that in those terms, because in a hyperinflation, everybody gets wiped out their values and you know their assets yeah. and everything. Where at least in a deflationary environment, the people that were responsible and kept their balance sheets clean and didn't live beyond their means are rewarded, uh, theoretically at least, with increased purchasing power if you have a real deflation. But but uh, it's an interesting question, but it's not it's more than an academic question because we're facing these realities now. I think we're facing. Uh, what could be some, you know, really difficult times, but I'm happy to hear you say you don't think it's going to be uh, as bad in either direction as some of my some of my friends think it might be. I, I hope you're right about that, because who wants to see uh, the kind of either hyperinflation or deflationary depression uh, that some people are predicting? Um, so, well, you're doing the good work of, of explaining this stuff to your students. How much are you able to talk to them about Austrian economics. Can you test them on it? Can you? Are you allowed to? Uh, well, when I taught, unfortunately, I served as business dean the last seven years, so uh-huh. I wasn't teaching, teaching much, yeah. but I was influential in getting Alex Padilla, who's a strong Austrian, hired at Metro, and my replacement is a Nicholas Chikonsky, who is a PhD student from Ben Powell, mm-hmm. who's running that free market think tank now at Texas Tech. So mm-hmm. we have too strong Austrian at Metro State, and uh, they've got an economic freedom lecture series that has been bringing in uh, speakers over the last three to four years that expose not only the econ students, but broad range of students to a more free market perspective. And yeah, when I did teach, I included that. In fact, my last teaching assignment before I retired, I taught a intermediate macro and used Roger Garrison's time and money. So oh, good. The, the whole course was built around an Austrian perspective that uh, I think students found it a very useful course. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, when people are exposed to Austrian economics, they say, aha, the 
that makes sense um, most of the time, unless they're PhDs, uh, you know, from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, and they have such great jobs that they're not allowed to think about things that make sense. They have to think about Keynesian folly, I suppose. The uh, if we only have animal spirits, we can be happy. We all we have to do. I mean, it was uh, Roosevelt that said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And all we have to do, and you hear, uh, you know, the mainstream people always talking about, when are we going to get the animal spirits? Well, when I drive out through Ohio and through the Midwest and places and realize that people, that they're really suffering, they're having a difficult time, lots of unemployment, lots of people that would work if they had jobs, if they could find them. And so what Keynes says is, well, let's just do more of the same. I mean, you know, one of the things, uh, John, that seems strange to me is that going all the way back, uh, except for the Austrians, nobody questions uh, the policies that were made in the 1930s, it drug on for a long time, but it wasn't that they were the wrong policies. It's only that they weren't perfected, right? So now they're going, by gosh, they're really going to re- uh, perfect them this time. They're just pumping, uh, as you pointed out, more and more money than was ever envisioned previously. Uh, actually, uh, there has been, even in some of the mainstream, some questioning of the interpretation mm-hmm. of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And pretty good work. And That's good. There's, I got an article, uh, Hoover Roosevelt Depression Revisited, that went out last May at Mises, that summarizes some of the new work being done, particularly out of UCLA, mm-hmm. that is empirically supporting uh, the interpretation of Rothbard and Higgs good. on what contributed to the Great Depression and uh, Richard Gall- Richard Vetter and Lowell Galloway's great book on unemployment mm-hmm. uh, has really good chapters on the Great Depression that, that shows the policy impacts that caused not only the Great Depression to last as long as it did, but contributed to the recession within the Depression in 1937. That is mm-hmm. the basis of Higgs' original argument on mm-hmm a regime uncertainty that mm-hmm. uh, keeps the economy from recovering. Yeah, indeed, and I'm uh, I'm listening to some market analyst, who, uh, one technician in particular who is uh, going back and comparing the present time to 1937 believes that we could be headed for another dip now. Do you think we could be headed for a, a, a recession at least now? Uh, I am probably still leaning more towards just continuing uh-huh. stagnation Muddling or... Along. Yeah. or a return to the 70s style mm-hmm. stagflation mm-hmm. absent any really significant policy mm-hmm. errors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's that's a big caveat yeah. given the current administration and yeah. that that Yellen is more under the influence of the fallacious Keynesian arguments of deficient demand causing unemployment and yeah. even Bernanke. Even, it's hard to imagine. That's hard to imagine. That, uh, and I think this recent article quoted Peter Schiff explaining why they're hiding. that They've so left open that while they're talking about tapering that they've got the option to re-hit the gas pedal on the yeah. monetary expansion if numbers start to look bad. And, yeah. And the most recent unemployment report certainly was. Certainly was, along those, yeah. 
wasn't good. <laughs> no, it, it really wasn't. Well, John, you know, we're just about out of time, but uh, I really want to thank you for coming on, and I also want to thank you for giving us a little bit of sunshine, a little bit of optimism. Certainly, you talked about the economy being maybe better than some people realize, and I think, you know, we're, we're certainly we're seeing energy prices uh, lower, um, and there is some reindustrialization, I think, that's taking place. Maybe we will get back to the point where we actually start manufacturing and making things in the supply side of the economy. Uh, maybe actually will be revived for no fault of this administration and, and I suppose any Republican administration that follows as well. But in any event, uh, your ideas, are, I think, are very well expressed uh, on this show and also just tell my listeners uh, at the Mises.org and go there and read this article, Current, Folly, Current, Current Fed Policy and Exercise in Keynesian Folly, because I think it lays out very well, very, very easy to understand terms why the current policies of the Federal Reserve is folly and why it is prolonging the um, the substandard economy that um, well we should really be having a better economy the problem is these guys keep doing the same thing that gets us into trouble because the uh, Einstein that defined insanity is uh, continuing to do the same thing and expecting different results so that's what we see uh, happening but I want to thank you uh, John for being with us again and uh, is there besides Mises.org any place else that people follow your work or is that really where they should go that's probably where they should go because that's where most of my stuff uh, highlighted. And yeah, and I would strongly recommend that they also look at my piece on uh, recession that don't do list, which okay. uh, takes some of Murray Rothbard's stuff. And that was and that's uh, out about this time last year. And that's also at the Mises. Uh, archive on their daily articles. Yeah, there's name. there's so much good stuff there, and you can go under a Professor Cochran's name, John Cochran, and look for it. Just an awful lot of good stuff at the Mises.org place and um, at that website. I want to yeah, thank okay. you again, uh, John, for being with us today, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. I'll keep my eyes open now for articles you write at the Mises.org. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay, and thanks for having me on. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for the first hour of today's show but there is more to come. Coming up next will be John Rubino, author of The Dollar Collapse. John will uh, talk about why the gold manipulation activities of the major bullion banks are destined to fail and why the price of gold is most likely headed to much, much higher levels. I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening to the show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Once again, go immediately to jtaylormedia.com and click on the podcast button. I'll be right back with my discussion with John Rubino at jtaylormedia.com. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.